as a general rule. I'm always of the belief that the bank doesn't want to end up with the asset. And particularly now, it's an unenviable scenario to end up with a class B or C office building. That means that, at least in spirit, lenders are quite inclined to work with and engage with borrowers. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So after our special episode on SVB and Signature Bank last week, we're swinging back to talk about the state of the commercial market and why we're starting to see distress start to peep through the cracks a little bit. Yeah. So following our episode about downtown Los Angeles, we're swinging over to the East Coast and digging into what's driving some of the distress we're seeing in New York and how we got to this point. Hint, we all know a lot of it has to do with rising interest rates, but there's more to it than that. And to do that, we're bringing on two guests today, Bob Knackle, a commercial broker at JLL in New York, and Sam Chandon, who is the director of the Global Real Estate Finance Institute at NYU's Stern School of Business. So an investment sales broker on the ground and an economist, and they both know each other very well. (laughs) When I interviewed Sam, he said that he was texting with Bob, which I thought was cute. That's funny. It kind of sounds like the start of a walks into a bar joke. I tried really hard to come up with some sort of joke about commercial distress, and I couldn't come up with anything. Um, <laughs> we can mull it over. We've, we've got plenty of time to pitch stuff. All right, let's jump into the news of last week. So I know we just said we're moving on from SVB and Signature Bank, but that's not entirely true. Susanna, last week you broke a story about the fate of Signature Bank's commercial loans. We know New York Community Bank was assuming Signature's assets, but tell me about what they didn't acquire. Yeah, so New York Community Bank agreed to buy about $13 billion worth of the firm's $74 billion lending portfolio, so just a fraction. And critically, that sale excluded the firm's $35 billion commercial real estate loan book. I thought that the comment from NYCB's spokesperson was really interesting. He was very adamant that absolutely none of Signature's commercial real estate loans came with that acquisition. Literally, he said zero. It sounded like he really wanted to emphasize that point. Yeah, I think so. I also think he was um, irritated with me for emailing him like five times over the past week, but I finally got a response, so we'll take what we can get. (laughs) But yeah, the lack of interest in that CRE loan book tipped off industry players that there was a bigger problem with these loans. We know that Signature was a major lender to the rent-stabilized market and that a lot of rent-stabilized properties are not doing great. There's distress cropping up there, too. Basically, they're grappling with this trifecta. There's revenue restrictions from the rent laws, inflation, and COVID arrears. So the worry there was a lot more of these loans are bad than we'd previously thought, and that's why they weren't bought. That's just one theory, though. It's also possible that New York Community Bank, which is the biggest lender to rent stabilize multifamily, just didn't want more multifamily loans on their books. It's also possible that many of these loans were made at the ultra-low interest rates that predated 2022, and the bank didn't want them for that reason. Got it. So what happens now? Regulators are still overseeing $61 billion worth of signatures loans, which they could either sell as a whole to another bank or buyer or sell off piecemeal. But we likely won't know what's going on until the FDIC drops another press release. So... TBD there. 
In another bit of New York news, one of the city's most iconic buildings sold at auction last week. The Flatiron Building was bought for $190 million at an in-person auction. And who was the buyer? So it's pretty wild, actually. His name is Jacob Garlick, and he runs an investment firm called Abraham Trust, but really not much is known about him. He works in D.C. He has a background in venture capital, working with startups, but he wasn't expected to win the auction at all. I think we've gone over this before, but for a little background refresher, the Flatiron Building was previously owned by four different groups, Sergente Group, ABS Real Estate Partners, Jeffrey Garral's GFP Real Estate owned 75%, and then Nathan Silverstein owned the remaining quarter. The 75% crowd initiated a partition sale after a disagreement arose with Silverstein, which then forced a sale of the building. And with a partition sale, owners can use their existing stakes to place what's called a credit bid on the property. Jeffrey Garral did that on Wednesday, and he was favored to win the auction, and he was there raising his placard against Garlic, but ultimately he lost out. Wow, yeah. I mean, now Garlic is the owner of one of New York's most iconic buildings. I wonder what he's going to do with it. Yeah, remains to be seen. Okay, so jumping back to the West Coast, you had a story about LA's new transfer taxes, which are set to take effect soon. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the city is now saying that it's expecting to make a lot less from the transfer taxes, also known as Measure ULA, which will add a 4% tax on all residential and commercial sales over $5 million and a 5.5% tax on sales over $10 million. The measure is now projected to reel in up to $672 million in revenues. That's during its first year. But when the measure was actually presented to voters in November, proponents of the taxes said they would add more than $900 million a year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so why the cut? Essentially, the city is recognizing that the market is slower and fewer deals are being done, which is true. We know that the housing market has drastically slowed. And Yardi Matrix came out with a report last week that said $154 million worth of offices in L.A. sold in the first two months of this year. Last year, that number was $659 million. Wow. Okay, so that's a huge drop-off. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And obviously, those are still estimates, and the true revenue could be a lot lower, or it could be a lot higher if sales start to pick up. But it is expected to be a lot lower, considering the tax is supposed to hamper sales further. I thought we had this good story out of Chicago, too, about how valuations for offices in the city have really plummeted. These buildings are just hemorrhaging tenants and suffering from huge vacancies, and now it's showing up on their appraisals. Right. And as we know, the Fed raised rates by a quarter of a percentage point last week, so office and commercial owners are likely to feel more pain, especially if they don't have rate caps on their debt and their debt is coming due. That's probably a good lead into our discussion about distress today, actually. Isabella, you spoke to Bob Knackle, who's one of the more famous investment sales brokers in New York. Yeah. And on the topic of interest rates, he agreed that rising rates have been the main driver of this really chilled market we're seeing. Everything is important on a relative basis, right? So we saw a, a change at the beginning of April of 2021 when all the first quarter reports came out from the residential brokers showing upward pressure on residential rents for the first time in years, good absorption in the condo market, And that led to a period of time where we had a lot of capital that was on the sidelines, come off the sidelines, get back in the game. 
And the 12-month period from July of 21 through June of 22 was actually a great 12 months. The Fed starts raising rates in March, but it really didn't impact the market tangibly until September, when I think a lot of lenders maybe didn't want to lend based on the uncertainties that were very evident in the market. The spreads on lending rates went up very significantly, and we saw a very tangible shift in the market at that time. You know, now we've seen what's happened within the banking industry, all of which is really symptomatic of the government pouring $1.5 trillion into the economy. A lot of that money ended up in savings accounts. Banks had more deposits than they could put loans out for. They needed to invest that money and they were investing it at relatively low rates. Rates went up massive increases in a relatively short period of time. And that has led to the circumstances that we're in today. It's just been a, a very massive shift in the the horizon, and it certainly is having its impact on real estate. And since he's been in the business a long time, I also wanted to get his perspective on the last 10 or so years ago, where we are in this real estate cycle and why. From my perspective, I lived through three other significant market corrections, and probably the most acute of which was the SNL crisis. Quick explainer here. The savings and loan crisis was this period of distress that stretched from the mid-80s to 1995. So interest rates soared during the early 80s as the Fed tried to combat stubborn inflation. In that environment, bank customers pulled their cash from these savings and loans, also called thrifts. They were institutions that specialized in residential mortgages. So when rates rose, it wiped the net worth of these thrifts, and there were waves of foreclosures. There's actually a Megadeth song, Foreclosure of a Dream, that was written about the crisis. That was really much, much worse than the great financial crisis, 08, 09. In the early 90s, values were down very, very significantly. No one had any money, couldn't borrow money. The banks were just foreclosing on everything. And you know, as a new list seemingly every week came out of properties they wanted to sell. Uh, we haven't seen anything in mass like that, but we do have a lot of folks who are wrestling with this refi issue. Um, and I think there is going to be a fairly robust supply of properties that are going to hit the market. Uh, in the second half of the year. There, there has been pent-up selling demand for a long time. Um, you know, this market has essentially, but for that 12-month period from, from mid-21 to mid-22, um, you know, we've been in correction mode uh, since, uh, since fourth quarter of 15. And uh, there, there, is, there are a lot of folks who um, will make moves, many of whom will not have a choice, um, some of whom will, but will choose to, to make a move. But uh, a lot of the folks who are going to be uh, doing things are, are not going to be discretionary. That historical context, I think, is key, and it's really helpful to understanding what's happening now. A lot of people like to make comparisons or try to pull out differences between 2023 and 2008, but not a lot of people talk about the savings and loan crisis. Right. I thought that, that it was interesting that he brought up the different environment that we're in now. And like he said, we haven't seen banks rushing to foreclose on everything. So you spoke to Sam Chandon about what we're seeing now and why it might lead to some more distress. So can you introduce yourself to start? I'm Sam Chandon, the founding director of the Chen Institute for Global Real Estate Finance at NYU Stern and a professor in the finance department. 
To start off, we've seen distress start to hit the office market. And from what I'm seeing, it seems to be connected to revenue issues, tenants not being able to pay rent back in 2020, that triggered defaults. But it seems like the foreclosure suits from lenders are just starting to crop up now. So I'm wondering, is that lag time typical of foreclosures? Or does it point to this prolonged hope among lenders that the pandemic would be a temporary hit and ultimately owners would be able to right the ship. I think when we look back to the early days of the pandemic, what we saw was a limited set of disruptions to cash flow. You know, companies may not have been sending their employees into the office. Uh, the offices may not have been open, but companies were productive. They were generating revenue. They were getting support from the government. Uh, and that was allowing for them to make their rent payments. That allowed for, when we look at the data, a very low level of delinquency and defaults, whether we're looking at bank lending and loans held on the balance sheets of banks, whether we're looking at loans made by life companies, by uh, alternative uh, source of investing, even in the CMBS arena. When we look at office properties, the kinds of increases that we saw in delinquency and defaults for office buildings were very measured as compared to the great financial crisis. When we look at what's happened in the subsequent couple of years, uh, in many circles, folks would describe it as an existential crisis for the office sector. What that has meant for us is that on one hand, as leases have rolled over, very often folks are taking less space. When they're renegotiating leases, they're able to do it, uh, in some cases, at lower price points. That has put pressure on uh, net operating income, uh, on cash flow, um, and it's made it more difficult uh, as, again, these leases have rolled over for landlords to collect the kind of revenues they need to make the mortgage payments. The delinquency and default rates then have started to creep up. Beyond the delinquencies, there have been some high profile, even in just the last couple of weeks, write downs of the valuations of office portfolios in New York City and elsewhere. There have been some cases where prominent participants in the market have uh, given assets back to their lenders before they go through the more painful process of, of a default and foreclosure. But we are very early in this cycle. Those delinquency rates are still low. And what that signals to us is that we're still fairly early in the process of having to manage real distress in the office sector. So among the owners who have defaulted now recently, what would you say pushed things over the edge? Yeah, what, what I'd say is that when we look at the defaults that have occurred, that you know, or even sort of the larger pool of delinquent loans in the office sector, at New York City and beyond, the pool is still small enough that rather than taking a statistical approach to thinking about sort of, well, what are the key or common drivers, there's still an opportunity to do some sort of anecdotal and idiosyncratic analysis. In one category, we absolutely have a situation where you know, a building is simply not competitive, you know, whether it be ceiling heights or the lobby or its exact location. And so you know, as those leases are rolling over, you know, those rollovers are proving dilutive to cash flow. Borrowers are then not able to make their mortgage payments, and they're running into trouble. In the second group, I'd say we do have you know, some mortgages that have matured. Banks and other lenders you know, have also taken different approaches in terms of how it is that they have engaged with distressed borrowers at the point of maturity. And in some cases, those maturing loans have resulted in defaults because at a mark-to-market valuation, uh, you're not able to get you know, new financing without putting cash in. And not everyone has those resources. Uh, and we will see more of that over the course of the next couple of years, because we are operating an environment of markedly higher interest rates, of in many cases, a deterioration in cash flow, and now tighter credit. 
We've seen that the availability of financing for new debt has tightened over the last year. And whereas in the summer of 2022, uh, I would have felt confident in saying to my colleagues in industry, to policymakers, to researchers that for a good deal, deal that really pencils out, the availability of financing is solid. I I don't think we can necessarily say uh, the same today. The third group, I'd say, where issues are arising is where we see borrowers that are being a little bit more proactive and saying, you know what, I've done a careful triage of my portfolio. While some assets will benefit tremendously from meaningful capital investment that will make them competitive in this market, some of them offer the possibility of a strategic repositioning as multifamily, which I think is sort of the thing that everyone immediately gravitates to. Some buildings will lend themselves to a repositioning and others won't. So I think we have seen some very prominent participants in the market that have proactively said, you know, I've triaged my portfolio and I've got these two or three assets that just don't work, given my expertise, given my access to capital, you know, given my the strategic focus of, of my firm. So uh, I'm not going to wait for that delinquency or default. I feel it's sufficiently inevitable or staving it off would require such a significant commitment of resources that it would be a pyrrhic victory. Uh, and so uh, I'm just going to hand these back. So of the loans that are having trouble, do banks seem willing to, or lenders in general, do they seem willing to work with the owners to offer options to restructure or modify the loan or come to some sort of deal where the property doesn't fall into foreclosure? As a general rule, I'm always of the belief that the the bank doesn't want to end up with the asset. And and particularly now, it's an unenviable scenario to end up with a, a class B or C office building. That means that at least in spirit, lenders are quite inclined to work with and engage with borrowers. What we know very clearly from the great financial crisis and even from you know, previous cycles is that the earlier a lender is able to identify potential issues or problems in the portfolio and then engage with a borrower, uh, the better the outcome will be for everyone. I would say that folks should take a look at, for example, the proposals and the you know, advice being offered by the Real Estate Roundtable that you know, represents the industry in, in Washington, D.C., and dialogue with the White House and the Capitol on you know, ways in which we can you know, think carefully now about how to provide lenders with the flexibility they need to engage with borrowers. And this is principally in the form of allowing modifications that do not trigger troubled debt restructurings. Taking some of those steps now in anticipation of the next few years in the office sector and potentially some others, otherwise being being very challenging. It is not just about ensuring you know, stability and or you know, helping to put a floor on you know, office valuations. The commercial banks in the United States, and as we've seen over the last you know, just a couple of weeks, are a space that requires attention and care, are heavily exposed uh, to, to commercial real estate and office amongst the pool of underlying assets. When we're thinking about you know, providing you know, that kind of flexibility to lenders that would allow them to engage with borrowers to modify loans as appropriate. We're not only trying to protect the commercial real estate industry, we're trying to protect the stability of a larger number of financial institutions that are absolutely critical to the uh, flow and availability of credit in our economy. I want to understand better how lenders are dealing with distress now versus how they did during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And I've heard from some attorneys, which is contrary to what you said about foreclosures, that banks were more willing back then to work things out with owners. Does it seem as though lenders are being 
more aggressive, I suppose, with these buildings that have fallen into distress? Sure. What I'd say is that during the great financial crisis, sort of the immediacy of the deterioration in the availability of credit to commercial real estate meant that the spigot was tightened quite quickly. And we would have faced very serious and systemic issues if we had not had the flexibility that was provided to us to work closely with our borrowers, whether it be you know on the bank side or, or the CMBS side. And so that flexibility was critical. Fast forward, we've seen sort of you know, government intervention during COVID and in the period that has followed that has been you know, even more aggressive in some senses. You know, when we look at the growth in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet during COVID, uh, when we look at you know, the nature and uh, scale of, of stimulus during COVID, along many dimensions, the federal government has taken a more aggressive and interventionist approach this time around than it did even during the GFC. When we look at how things have played out for lenders in terms of their real estate portfolios, it's not getting you know the same kind of attention. This is not a real estate-driven crisis. That We don't have deterioration in the performance of real estate portfolios as the driver of a deterioration in you know, financial stability in the United States. And so, no, we don't have the same set of tools at our disposal. Our lenders work aggressively to try and seize assets and undertake foreclosures, there I'd say no. While we may not have access to the same degree of flexibility that we did during the GFC, at least not at this point, I don't believe that we should infer from that a difference in intention on the part of the lenders. I think the lender's best case scenario is still one where the asset remains with the borrower. In the office sector, you know, I think that that's especially true because there are concerns that losses will have to recognize as lenders if we were to end up with a non-viable office building would be larger than if we're able to come to you know, some kind of modification agreement that allowed for the borrower to remain current on their loan. All of this being said, I think we are seeing and expecting that lenders will build up their reserves um, in anticipation of you know, taking larger losses over the course of the next uh, couple of years. And so if we want to be proactive about uh, limiting the degree of distress and the way in which that distress might impact you know, some banks that are heavily exposed to certain asset classes, certain geographies, then we do want to provide lenders with a greater degree of flexibility than they have today. Deconstruct is every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guess you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're taking a look at the luxury market in Miami. Tune in then.